All right, Josh Smith here, live at my Flat 5 Studios. And my guest today is one of my better friends in the business. You know, you don't often make, like, real friends when you're out there playing music. You cross paths with guys, and, you know, you play with people, you jam, you do this and that. But I really feel like I made a friend when, when we started hanging out and talking. He's one of my favorite artists and guitar players. Um, we did this interview recently, and I fucked up. And I'm just going to put that disclaimer on it, and I apologize to Ariel for, for – <laughs> I didn't hit record. So we're doing it again. Um, and so thank you for being patient with me, man, uh, and thank you for doing this. Welcome, everyone, Ariel Posen. Hey, everybody. This is, that was the rehearsal, man. That's right, man. You can only get better. Right. For you know, the more you better. do something. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I guess, you know, so, <laughs> so man, you know, at the, at the, uh, the hope of keeping this fresh and moving along, I still want to make sure the people who don't know you get a good sense of your path and your background, because it is very interesting to everybody and to me as well. So I, I'm, you know, you're from Canada and right. <laughs> not that that means anything but you are okay <laughs> and um it is a fact yep it's a fact when did the guitar get put in your hands first the guitar got put in my hands first when i was about seven years old and at that point i was already playing piano piano was my first instrument and i should say both my parents are musicians and right. i think a lot of people who know me will know this already but i spent my childhood up until I was, you know, old enough to not have to be babysat. Basically I was traveling. My brother and I were traveling with my folks, festivals, little tours, stuff like that. So I was just immersed in it. Uh, we started on piano. I say we, cause my brother was playing too. And I just took this liking to, to the guitar. I, I didn't understand why, but it started to make sense. You know, I, I'm left-handed first of all. So I would grab a guitar, left-handed way. I would just strum nothing. And I, to my ears, it sounded like I was making music. It sounded like I was playing songs I knew. Of course, it wasn't. But I took a liking to it. I, you know, I, I gave piano a good chance. It was all cool. And then around, you know, 94, 95, I was about eight years old. And first of all, everyone in my school started playing guitar. So all the, all the guys and girls in my class were just like, guitar was just the thing. And at that time, you know, Green Day, Nirvana, Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, all these bands was like the biggest thing. It was guitar as an ensemble piece was the coolest and biggest thing right now. And there was a bunch of Canadian bands too that I was listening to a lot that were just like, oh my God, like guitar is so fucking cool. Like look at these guys standing in, on a stage playing these songs, swearing, being just like anti-everything. And, you know, it was, all, it was the whole package that was really speaking to me. So there was all that. And then at the same time, the Beatles anthology had come out. And both my folks grew up during Beatlemania, experienced the whole thing in person, fell in love with it. And when this came out, they, they were like, we're going to watch this, guys. And... My brother and I watched it and we were just taken by it. Something, you know, there was obviously a heavy influence on my folks, but we watched that and something changed in me as well to like just the songs, attention to singing, even like from the appearance point of view, like everything was so um, impactful on me. So yeah, those were the two things that I was like, okay, 
we got to get a guitar in my hand, begged for a guitar, got a, you know, crappy first acoustic. Mm-hmm. And uh, two, about two years later, or maybe a year and a half later, I finally convinced my folks to rent me an electric guitar from Long McQuaid. And it was an Ibanez RX series, mm-hmm. Humbucker in the Bridge. Great guitar, actually. And like a once the month radius. <laughs> no, I think it was 25 and a half. It was basically <laughs> like straight up strat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, month went by. Can we rent it for another month? Yeah, okay. One more month? Yeah, okay. One more. <laughs> and you know what happened next. We, we never returned it. We just yeah. paid it off. How much does and it cost to it? rent an Ibanez RX per month, Canadian dollars? Well, in 1996 or 95, maybe cheap, man. Maybe I'm thinking 20 to 30 bucks a month. That makes sense. Just like and then rent, you think, to, rent to own, basically. Yeah. I mean, it probably got to a point after three, four, five months, my folks were just like, yeah, maybe there's a couple hundred bucks left on this thing. We'll just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, obviously you're lucky that your parents were musicians, but even if they weren't, it's interesting how the kind of music your parents listen to, you either go two ways. It's either something you can't stand and it turns you off completely, or it ends up like being the thing that gets you going. You know, so like my parents were not musicians, but they listened to great music. So it immediately, I got excited because I could see how much they loved it. And I kind right. of followed suit, you know what I mean? And But if it would have been Lawrence Welk or Yanni or whatever, who knows what would have happened, you know? So you're yeah. lucky in that respect. I was very lucky. And I should also say, like, my, my mom has a great taste in music. You know, they grew up on that 60s, 70s, you know, like Carol King, James Taylor, all, like a bunch of good singer-songwriter type stuff. But my dad, for 30 years, he worked at the CBC, which is the main, you know, radio station or Canadian Broadcast Corporation in, in Canada. And he had a show called After Hours for almost 30 years, which was like the number one jazz station in the country. And he was the producer. So he was always bringing all these jazz records home and, and playing them. And we'd always listen to the show. And, you know, he had, he's got this, this host, Ross Porter, who was like this iconic voice here in Canada. It was just this whole combined thing that that also really spoke to me. And I didn't realize how much it impacted me until I was older. But that as a young age, you know, it, it really got me immersed in thinking about that music and just having a wealth of music to myself. Because also, you know, uh, when you're a kid and you have like take your kid to work day or something like that, not every kid is so lucky to, okay, you're going to come to the office today or, you know, we're just going to leave you at home with the babysitter. When we went to work, I mean, my mom's a teacher. We either went to her class but if we went to my dad's work, he'd say, okay, I got to produce a show. I'm working. Go to the library and do your thing. And for those that don't know what a library is at a radio station <laughs> in the 90s, that's every single album that you could think of right when it comes out, but anything you could ever want. And as a kid who doesn't have money, I take every record that I was interested in, CDs like Stacks is Big, headphones. I've just read through all the liner notes and listen to all these albums fucking amazing and that shaped me greatly too and that's like a, a, a huge reason even to this day i still like getting physical copies just to read through it and when i release music i really want to make sure that information is relayed too because it's it, it's so important 
It, yeah, it drives me crazy when that stuff is not there. And like you said, when I whenever I release something, it's like I put in extra information because I know as a fan, I want to see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's yeah, you feel kind of a responsibility to do it when you grow up reading those liner notes and obsessing over what studio did they record this in? You know, which room at that yeah. studio? Who engineered, you know, blah, 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 all those things. Not, not to mention, of course, who played on it, but... Yeah, but especially who, those who played on it. Like now, you know, as a sideman too, how many records have you played on where it finally gets released? And, you know, it's not our job to be uh, heralded or, or advertised for it. It's not our music. We're just there to customer service, right? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it should be. I think Title is the only DSP that actually shows full You're right. Full credit. And what's funny is in the 20 years I've been in L.A., of the sessions I've done that were like bigger label sessions where they should get that stuff right and, and things were in the liner notes, I'd get the album when it finally comes out, and they'd have me listed on like three songs I didn't play on and not on the oh. six songs I did play on, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or they yeah. give you – or they list you like – they don't go song by, this is a pet peeve of mine, when, when they don't go song by song liner notes, yeah. and they're, they'll just go, you know, maybe there's two other guitar players on it, and rather than saying, yeah, okay, Ariel Posen played on eight songs, so this other guy played on three songs, this other guy played on one song, it's just guitars, yeah. three names, with no detail. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh. again, not that like I'm looking for, hey, look at me, look, I played on these songs, but like, just do justice to the credits. Yep. Write information in. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it, it's important for the fucking special payments fund as well. <laughs> <laughs> for those neighboring rights. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right, oh, man. All right. So you get an Ibanez RX guitar that you rent yep. to own and you're learning songs, you're playing. And I know we talked about this before. You said for a while you weren't even concerned with really soloing. You were all about like learning songs and kind of writing songs working on on music from that point of view when did you start playing with uh, other musicians besides your family like you know outside the family i started playing with people outside my family when i was about well there was school band which counts but it wasn't anything super serious it was just my friends that counts though i guess i was about 12 or 13 and then I started playing gigs for money when I was 14, I think was my when I first started. Here is some money. Thank you for playing this thing. Okay, you know. So that's when it started. And there was a few years of that. I'd say I, I was doing a lot of playing in a couple groups till I was about 15 or 16. And then I, I, I discovered, it's not that I discovered, it's more that I started paying attention to, like Stevie Ray Vaughan. Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Robin Ford, you know, all the jazz guys. I, I just started getting into that world. And that suddenly was like, in fact, I had this moment. I don't remember if I told you this last time in our rehearsal interview, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I had this, I, I, so stupid, but I was a kid, so I had no excuse. I had this feeling like, you know what? I think I just got bored and uninspired. But in my head, I was kind of thinking, maybe I've just said all I can right now on this instrument, which is ridiculous. But that's how I was feeling. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna put, put some time into drums. I really love drums. They're so satisfying to play. Again, this was, you know, early, early, early 2000s. So rock music was still a thing and it was still popular. So I just wanted to like, I just wanted to hit hard and play along to all these songs I knew. 
And I did that for maybe a month. And, and that's when I, like, I think I heard couldn't stand the weather. Yeah. And right from the first track, no, no shit. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. oh my God, what am I doing? Like, it was just this moment of, I really hope nobody, or like, I really hope only maybe one person heard me say that I think I've said enough right now because <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. And basically from that moment on, it was really scuttlebutton. Like from that moment on, I put my head down and it's like I haven't looked up, so to yeah. speak. I can certainly relate. I mean, scuttlebutton was big for me as well because that was the first actual record I got too. Somehow it was the first one I owned before Texas Flood because I think it was the only one at the yeah. music store the day that I went to finally go buy Stevie Ray Vaughan. So right, fair I brought enough. it home and yeah, you hit start on that and that comes on. It's just like, come on, you're a guitar player. There's nothing you could do, you know. It's like the same the thing when you hit play on Van Halen one, you know, it's like, what are you gonna do? You know, like it was that. it was like I was in the desert forever, and someone took a bucket of water and sprayed like splashed it in my face, and that was Scuttlebutton and all that shit was the water, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, I've been dehydrated. Holy fuck, you know. Yeah. Side yeah. note, side note, are you familiar with Session the Sessionaire on Instagram? I forget his his name. He's this dude that runs a bunch of stems no. from random records. So I caught it the other day, and he, he had the stems to Texas Flood, like the song Texas Flood. Really? Yeah. And I got to say, this is just a side note because we're, we're going Stevie for a second. couple crazy takeaways. So first of all, he's playing with so much more reverb than I had any idea that he was using, at least on, that, on those sessions. Okay. It is drenched in reverb. Mm -hmm. Um. Think that, I think he had a rotary on. I think he had a Leslie on. Like, very subtle. It sounds like it. Hmm. Was it the whole Either, album, Texas Flood, or just the song? Just the song. This was just the song. All and, right. Okay, and this, this was the craziest. Oh, and obviously, there's two more things. The, the, third, the last one about his playing was just listening to him solo. You know, when we listen to anybody soloed, you hear the scrapes and the... Mm -hmm. blemishes and whatnot yeah there wasn't a single fucking blemish <laughs> clean as hell seriously seriously awesome. it, was so, it was so perfect and then okay this is this was the craziest one he isolated his vocal and i felt i noticed the same thing when i like i heard the superstition stems and you know i was like oh my god there's another clav part you don't even hear like i had like these revelations with stevie we think that he goes well, it's flooding down in Texas. But every, his vibrato ending every note, he would do this thing where it was like, well, it's flooding down in Texas. Like, <laughs> I can't explain it, and it doesn't sound like how I did it, but it was like this mutant, crazy, over-the-top vibrato that you don't actually hear in the recording. It's like his yeah. trail off. Uh -huh. It was crazy, man. Uh, I wish you could have been on that, that. I, that's like when you listen to Van Halen isolated and you hear, you know, man, again, the, the no blemishes, you hear how much less dirty he is than you really think he is. He's much cleaner yeah. than you think his tone is stuff like I remember hearing Marvin Gaye heard it through the grapevine isolated vocal and just oh, yeah. going, there's no possible way that someone is this good. You know what I mean? I, I, I can't. Yeah, it's it's even better than what you hear in the track. It's like, yeah, yeah you, it's unreal, unreal. It, okay. uh, yeah, same with like the Stevie. 
You got to look. I have a whole. Uh, actually, you, you were hanging with Mike, uh, Ian, and Mike. So Mike Goodman, he got me a bunch of those stems on one of those guitar breaks. Okay. And so I got everything from the Police to Queen to yeah. like all yeah. the Jamerson stuff, bunch of Stevie yeah. Wonder, Pink yeah, Floyd. I have, tons, I have Motown is what I have the most. I have tons of Motown stuff. And if yeah, anybody yeah. wants to really completely blow their mind, go listen to the vocal from the Spinners. It's a shame. It's ridiculous listening to him jump up into the falsetto part on a live take. It's you have to listen to that. It's the greatest uh, isolated vocal I've ever heard in my life. But yeah, I just love that shit so much. I mean, how how tired are we all of superstition? We all acknowledge its its greatness as a song, but like, yeah. you don't want to be on a stage when someone's calling that, right? To no. hear it, to hear the isolated vocal of superstition, it moved me. It was so I incredible, and, and it just it, you you. You put aside that you're sick of the song. It's like there's Mustang Sally, Superstition, those Use Me, these kind Use of songs. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that we're all just like, fuck. Ugh. But hearing it isolated and just hearing the purity and the genuine performance of it and him just moving along and, and singing, I was like, fuck me. It was so good. Main thing about Superstition and Use Me that I, I hate the most is, well, nobody just plays it right when you hear them play it all the time especially True. the bass players so sorry bass players but you always fuck up use me and superstition superstition is quarter notes that's it use yeah, me yeah. does not play the clav line i'm sorry that's a clav line but whatever okay my biggest okay. pet peeve in superstition is that when everyone thinks they're playing like the horn line everyone yeah don't go to the flat seven <laughs> oh, oh <man>. anyway <laughs> all right <laughs> so so stevie Gets on you and Hendrix and Clapton, Robin Ford, all sorts of different guys. Do you immediately start taking that skill kind of out to test drive, you know, on in gig situations or playing with your friends? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I had started a band, I'd say when I was 18, with my friends, with Dave Landreth and Paul Yee, who, you know, my guys I still are still my friends and still I work, we work together in different capacities uh we had a trio and i sang i fronted yeah. and played and it was just an excuse to play and have gigs and just to cut our teeth we'd pick a bunch of obscure tunes from stevie to the police to the meters to galactic to doyle bramhall to yeah. you know a little bit of everything under the sun and i and like we started writing some tunes so we would record a couple songs play some songs but it was all about the playing it was about stretching out it was about having fun. And that's, yeah, you know, I'd be listening to a handful of blues. Hey, let's play uh, Rugged Road or uh, uh, Nothing to Nobody. Or, uh, sorry, that's, that's actually on Supernatural. But, yeah. you know, everything I was listening to, I'd start picking songs off of it and be like, let's do this one. Let's do this one. Even if I feel like I had no chance doing it justice, I just wanted to be immersed in it and do it. And I don't know about you, but I feel like my practicing – I put in those hours. I was all day, mm. all night playing guitar. I was going to dinner with the guitar on. I was running upstairs. Guitar was still on. But the, there's practicing and there's application. And application for me was the most useful on the gigs. Oh, yeah. You know, you got to try it in context with people, in the, with the songs that you're playing. That's where I had all my breakthroughs. You know, like when I switched oh, to open tunings and, and stuff like that, you think it's just going to come from sitting at home? No, I took an open E guitar to all my gigs. And whether it was trial by fire or not, like that, that's what made it 
click for me mm-hmm. on in the moment having to apply it. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. we were playing all these songs. We were playing all these songs and and stretching out and learning. And I was just so inspired by all that stuff. And even the the taste of the songs would evolve as I was starting to listen to other stuff. And at that point already, I would just be getting calls to play with other bands and artists, like sideband stuff. So yeah, yeah, that would take up more of the time. So you're doing, okay. So you got your, your band with your friends and you're writing some songs, you're playing a bunch of covers and you're starting to do gigs with other people too. Sideman stuff, and let me see if I remember this correctly from our rehearsal. You you decided because a guidance counselor told you to that you should go into physical therapy or something like that, athletic therapy, something. You got it. Yeah. Am I right on so, that? Yeah, you're right. So out of high, so this is out of high school. Uh, preface: I played a lot of basketball, so I was right. fairly serious about playing basketball in high school. My whole life, my whole life in high school was basketball and music slash guitar. And I wasn't good enough to play college, but I went to a very small, tiny school. I had a high vertical, and I, I put in a lot of time. And I was actually okay, like, for the school. <laughs> yeah. But I loved it, and I was very serious about it. And, and the school knew that. So when you're graduating grade 12, they set you up with a guidance counselor just for a session, just in case you weren't sure about what you wanted to do. They want to try to push you in the right direction. Yeah. And sure enough, this this guidance counselor was like, well, yeah, we know you like the music and whatnot, but um, the basketball, you know, that's a good, uh, that's sports is very good. And have you ever thought about athletic therapy? And, I, and I'm sitting there, first of all, I hated school. Like I didn't give a shit. I, I did homework just to get it done. Yeah. I did not give a shit. I just was either in the gym playing or I was in the band room playing or I was at home playing guitar. So I said, yeah, actually, that sounds, yeah, I mean, I love basketball. I mean, if I could work in that scene somehow. So I said, yeah. So I go home to my parents. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go into athletic therapy. <laughs> and they're both just like, are you fucking kidding? Like, are you serious? You're not going to want to do that. I said, no, I'm serious about it this time. Like, I know I wasn't really crazy about school, but I've been convinced that this is the right move and I can be involved in the scene with sports. Maybe I can get a job working for a professional basketball team or something like, all right, we support you. Then sure enough, I, I went to u- university, college. The first day, my first class was biology. And I walked into this big theater room. There's 200 people in there. And I haven't taken science until, since it was mandatory. So probably yeah. grade nine or 10. Yeah, and I walk in 10th grade. And the professor comes on a screen, not in person. Hey, everybody, I'm professor whatever. Welcome to biology. And it's clearly from 1991 or something like that. And I, I sit there right away. I go, wow, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> and I, I sucked up about two months of that or so. And then I slowly just dropped out of every course and fully went back to, I was still playing gigs and stuff like that, but right. I was fully dove in. <laughs> but dude, imagine you could have been like, you know, head trainer for the Raptors. The Raptors, you could have been, you know, when, when Serge Ibaka has a strained groin, that could have been you taking care of that. Well, I mean, at that time, keep in mind, we still had Vince. I know. So I, you know, imagine, and, and I know how much of an impact Vince was on you. Huge. But, but imagine how much of an impact Vince was to all of us Canadians. Yeah. For our only yeah. Canadian team, uh, once Vancouver became yeah. Memphis, it, like, 
So I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. Mo Pete and Vince and yeah. Jerome Williams and Antonio David, Alvin yeah. Williams. All Alvin Williams, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so man. that was, yeah. But right away I was like, oh, that's what I have to do to get there? Hell no. <laughs> yeah. By the way, just sidebar, yes, massive, massive Vince Carter fan. My favorite I guess athlete, honestly, in my life that I followed, seen almost every game of his career. And if you haven't seen it yet, uh, the guy Maximilian, who does the greatest Vince videos on YouTube ever for for the last twenty years, he he finally just put out Vince's career retrospective. It's forty five minutes. I cried like a baby. You have to watch. Oh my god! I'm gonna go watch that when we're done. Yeah. I'm I'm just so happy that he's still he's gonna go into broadcasting and and be more present. He's such a personality. He like he he'll be one of those like I don't want to compare him to like a Chris Webber, but like those players that are still in the scene and like broadcasting. He'll he'll be he'll flourish. I think. I think so. Um, I think so. Did you watch his In the Smoke? Do you ever watch? Have you ever seen any of those? I haven't seen that. No. Matt Barnes and uh, Stephen Jackson. It's pretty good. I think I heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's actually, really good. I'll check it. But anyway, yeah, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Well, and he was a musician. I always thought that was interesting. And I told, right. I told you my one story, right? The reason I became yeah. a fan. I saw him playing on the playground in Daytona. So I was, cool. I was playing a gig at the bank in Daytona. It was a bank and blues club. And, yeah, he was going to school in, in Daytona. That's where he's from. And he had just committed to North Carolina. And we were there for a Friday, Saturday weekend. So Saturday day, I'd gotten in the habit of going to this park right next to the hotel because I'd played this club a number of times, because there was a basketball court in this park, and I would go shoot around, because I, I like to play basketball a lot. And I was shooting hoops, and down on the other end of this court was this dude just draining everything and dunking, working out by himself. And I asked some of the like local people hang out, who is that guy? And they said, oh, that's Vince Carter. He goes to the high school, but he just committed to UNC, North Carolina. And I just oh. made note of that, and I was like, when he went to North Carolina, I watched some of those games and was like, I like this. He just became my favorite player like that. As if. I mean, I, I do remember telling you that story. Just, yeah. just, I feel like you have a really good memory, and you really pay attention to details. So, I mean, <laughs> just being able to seeing, see that and then hang on to it, and then when, it, you know, when he became like the legend that he is now, which yeah. he was then, too. You could you probably remember that in such great and to this day you probably still do. And just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. Very clear. Uh, all right, so you drop out of physical therapy college like that. Uh, yeah. Do you continue your trio with your friends while also doing sideman stuff? Yeah, it just slowly dwindled out as we as I got too busy because I was the one booking it and. Yeah. When we first started, I was booking us maybe three gigs a week, and then I was still playing with other people. But like, I would, I would put close to three hundred bucks a week in those guys' pockets just from these shitty gigs. Like, yeah. we'd be playing to nobody one night, and like, they were completely self-indulgent gigs. These gigs, the odd time we do an actual show with another friend's band or like an actual concert, and those were fun. Uh, those like those would be really great, but ninety percent of the gigs we did were completely self-serving. Three sets, mm. you kind of play musical the first set, second set, no one's there anymore. You really stretch out. Every song becomes twelve minutes. Yeah, you know it's it's it, it was just that. Kind of my favorite thing in the world, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, and that's something I have 
I have really not experienced in a long time. I really miss that. I really, really miss that. Although I got to say, I was, when I was living in Ireland for a few years, they don't do three sets. If you're playing a wedding, if you're playing a, a club, if you're playing any kind of situation, it's two hours max. And yeah. I dig it. And here's why. Those set, those set breaks kill you. Yeah. I find like you play a first set. Okay, let's get back up for the second set. You kind of lose your energy. Like right at that end of that first set, you, you're finally there. You're warmed up and ready. And then you start again. And then the second set ends. And then it's like, oh, we're really doing this. Over there, and in the UK too, you play two hours straight. Yeah. And you don't even realize the time is gone. You're, oh my God. Yeah. I love yeah, it. It's weird. When I first started touring in Europe, I'm so conditioned to playing, you know, three hours worth of music at yeah. least. And I played my first handful of tour dates in Germany and these places. And I'd get up there and play, and we'd play first set, you know, I'd play 90 minutes or something like that. And they'd go, oh, so you're only doing one set. And I'm like, no, no. And they're like, oh, well, you could be done if you want. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> no, 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 I'm going to play another set, <laughs> you know? And it was, it was always like, yeah. It's also the early start times get me, too, on all those yeah. European gigs. Yeah. Right. Don't get me wrong. Like, for, for touring, I, I do like a proper uh, – proper concert set where you've you've, you've oh, played this set so many times to like find what works and ebbs and flows but there's just playing that's not just playing like i had yeah. you gotta like for my set i really have to navigate a couple moments where i'm just okay here's these are the couple songs that we stretch out on. yeah um, but it's yeah when you're doing your own thing and you've kind of trying to cultivate an audience there's a difference between you know performance where you're really showcasing yourself the best you can right. and then just that gig at the bar that you do because you want to play. But, man, do I miss those. Like, man, those years from age 14 till 20 when I just played so many gigs, three and four sets a night, I mean, man, I, I, miss, I miss some of that a lot. And that's what shapes you, too. Those are the 100%. gigs that, yeah, those are the gigs that make you who you are. Without those, and I think I've seen generations, at least where I'm from, like my generation was very... I think player based, a lot of like, it was song based too and writing based, but I'm seeing the newer generations be a lot more about uh, just writing songs, being artists, being bands, not as much like players. Yep. And maybe that'll come back. And this is just where I'm from, but it's, it's just interesting to see uh, the, I don't know. The this changes, was like, the only path they see to success. Cause I mean, man, how many guys did you know growing up who made their entire living by playing covers five nights a week? You know, that's not a thing anymore. You know, no. the 40-year-old dude who only plays gigs at night but doesn't write music, that's, that dude can't, can't pay his bills. It doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. No. Yeah. And, you know. And all the dudes, at least back home, that do that uh, and do debts, <laughs> they're, they're definitely – they're weekend warriors. They all got – jobs during the week it's not it's not a full-time thing because there's there's no places to play yep. during the week every night of the week to do that oh, dude, the playing. guys that i grew up playing gigs with the adults when i was 13 and i started playing with all these guys i played with them three four nights a week oh definitely friday saturday sunday but they'd do a duo on tuesday and then a wedding on wednesday and then they'd have a, a more top 40 gig on a thursday night and they were playing six seven nights a week 
You know, yeah. none of them had any other jobs. Absolutely none of them. Yeah. Totally. I feel like the landscape of gigs has changed because uh, all the, like you were saying, like, like the, the, the older guys that you play with, when I was starting up and I was playing with guys older than me, and I'm talking maybe 20 years older than me, 25 yeah. years, they would all say, oh man, you think you're busy now, like back in the early 90s or this, like, yeah, just like you said. Yeah. Not, on, not only were they busy with gigs, but like we were doing jingles, we we're doing sessions in a place like Winnipeg. Uh, it's not a hub for that kind of stuff, but there was that kind of work like crazy. Yeah. The landscape keeps changing and you just kind of unfortunately evolve with it. You know, if you're in a position where you can do what you want to do and do what you need to do, hopefully there's a couple places that are outlets for you to just show up and maybe still make some money off of it and just play for yourself. Yep. yep. Oh, so when, when does it transition into like real kind of paying sideman gigs when you start getting out there on the road and you start to realize hey i'm getting to be self-sufficient here and this is something i can maybe do f for the rest of my life for real you know yeah um probably started like i probably started realizing that when i was uh 22 21 or 22 i started it, it yeah, there was a couple of gigs that I was making a lot more money than I was used to, but it was also just like a barrage of gigs. I felt like the phone was always ringing and the emails were was always flooded, which I was grateful for. But at the same time, I was out there hustling my ass off. Every opportunity to go meet someone that I didn't know, I would say yes to every gig. I would be I'd be a yes man, even if it meant I'd have to put a suit on, like play play a function gig. Yeah. run into my car, put on cool clothes, run to this pop gig, and then run across town to the old shithole where my friends are playing so I could just play the third set with them. And I would, I'd be doing that. But around 22, 23, you know, I started maybe 21. I started getting more gigs where it's like, oh, we're flying to Toronto or we're flying to Vancouver or we're flying to, whoa, we're going to California or something, <laughs> something like that, you know? Yeah. It's crazy when that starts happening. Yes, it is, yeah. Actually, um, yeah, I remember one of the first gigs. It was just so like we played for this girl from Montreal. And we flew all the way. We rehearsed. We played a fashion show in Toronto. Played one song. Flew all the way there. And then we, we did the Red Eye. We flew all the way to Calgary to play a benefit. And we're all of us had not done a lot of traveling for music. Maybe mm -hmm. some of them had. Uh, but it was his benefit where Ben Affleck was the host. He was emceeing it, and George Benson was the was the main act. And here we are pl playing uh, for this pop artist. And it was one song. We we flew all the way there. We were so tired, and I had to fly back to Toronto because I was attached to on another tour. And I remember we were so like the small fish, even though to us it was like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. That we didn't even get to sound check, and we didn't even get to use any of our gear. So like this is a big rock like pop gig and I had to play through a clean basement <laughs> and and it was like I okay I guess you know even though however you want to distinguish what success is that kind of means nothing it just means you're making it happen yeah but you know there's celebrities here and we're playing we're making good money doing this gig but I started realizing okay just because it's eh, whatever you want to call it better or something doesn't mean that it's going to be necessarily a better experience it was uh, it was eye opening, 
And that was just one stupid example. But I did have a lot of fun and I was very fortunate playing with bands that, you know, constantly was on tour buses, comfortable flights, nice hotels, all that kind of stuff. And great shows, like playing to thousands of people, at, like iconic kind of venues. And yeah, very fortunate. It, it kept going and going. So yeah, I don't know when it, it kind of started around there, I guess. Yeah. And then I, I would still always do, because you know this very well too, once you start traveling a lot, everyone back home, you're immediately on like the no call list because you're always on the road. So <laughs> the last four days of tour, you start doing the emails again and the calls like, hey, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be home for the next month. Just remember me if you yeah. need anybody. Yeah. Doing, and that was, that's, that's the life. Yeah, it's partially what led me to not want to be doing the sideman stuff anymore. It wasn't just that. It was, you know, once you do it for long enough and get used to it, you kind of see that you'll you'll have these periods of, you know, what we want to call success where we're really talking about financial stability, maybe a yeah. good year, you know, and then you'll have months of just like nothing. You know, and I don't mean you're not working. I just mean financially nothing. And that, that, you know, vicious circle I got that, that was what made me get out of it for the most part was I, I, I could have done that for the next 40 years. And I don't know if I would have really enjoyed it anymore. You know, I was already hitting the wall kind of. Totally. It kind of happened very natural for me because I was doing a lot of sideband stuff and then I started playing in the bros. That was a very, still a sideman thing, but it, it was so full time that I, I really, when you had those two weeks off from the road t where I would normally say, Hey, I'm going to be home if you need it. Like I just start, stopped doing it a lot more than I used to because I was just tired. I, I really wanted that time off yep. and stuff would still come up. You know, I had started doing more producing and I, a lot more session work rather than live work when I was home. And then, yeah, I, like when we took a break for a long time and I was, uh, I moved to Ireland. And at that point I was like, well, how did I first get my start when I first started again? Well, I just started booking my own gigs and playing my own thing. And so I just did that. I played some, booked some gigs for fun under my own name with some guys over there and it kind of lit the fire. And I was like, yeah. I really, I forgot what this felt like just to play. And I forgot what it felt like to front. And there's a different satisfaction that comes with that. And it's almost like I didn't know that I was missing it. It just felt right. Yeah. And yeah. It's amazing how sometimes you cannot know how much you miss something or how much you should be doing something until you do it again, you know, almost by accident or you're driven to it. And it's like, it kind of clicks like, this is what I'm meant to be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Oh, so now that that leaves us to where you are now, which is, you know, releasing your own records and you've got a new one coming soon. You've got a single out now. Yeah. Um, you know, is this, uh, we all know the challenges involved with putting out our own music and being our own thing, our own enterprise, you know, but uh, is it as rewarding as you, you kind of hope it is going to be, uh, even in spite of the challenges? You know what? A hundred percent. I, I, in fact, I don't think, I don't think I've ever felt more of the rewards and, and, and by the rewards, there is nothing physical. It's all just how you yeah. feel for your soul, you know? Yep. It, yeah. To come off stage 
to have people singing along to some lyrics or just uh, just appreciating it, coming yep. to buy merch, coming to say hi, you yep. know, dropping messages, stuff like that. It's like, wow, this is like, it just feels like, okay, maybe I'm doing something right here, hopefully, you know? Yeah, it's a special, I mean, you can never take for granted that feel like, wow, somebody actually cares about this stupid thing that I wrote in in my living room, like, you know, and they spent money to buy it, like, and they bought a shirt with my name on it and this ridiculous bullshit, like, that's a great, it is a great feeling, like, you can't take that for granted, even if it never never leads to, you know, giant fame or fortune, it's still a kind of amazing thing that anybody even cares. Totally, and and that's, going circling back to success, that's what success is for me, it's like, doing what you want to be doing, not doing what you're hired to do, not doing what someone's telling you to do or what you think you should be doing yep. and just being accepted for it and yep. being, having it be embraced and just being able to keep it going. Yeah. But it takes, you know, you also have to put yourself in a position where you can do that and not end up homeless. So, you know, it, <laughs> it depends on a lot. There's a lot of determining factors. Like I know you're married and, you know, for me, my wife was in, it just can't even be measured how important her role has been in me being able to even do this at all for a living, her being the rock and the breadwinner. And, you know, those type of factors can't be overlooked in the, in people's pursuit of, you know, trying to be a happy person in a creative field. Yeah, man. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's get into the 10 questions, man. All right. All right. This is good because it actually didn't come up this time like it did in the rehearsal, so it'll be fresh right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you first started playing and learning, what was the first lick that when you figured it out, you couldn't? You were almost so proud of yourself, you couldn't even believe it, and there was no turning back? Like, I can't believe I got this. This is the greatest feeling ever. Oh, shit. Um... <sighs> I, this always happens. I have a, I have trouble just like, you know, thinking about it. Um, I think it goes back to, I mean, the original. Maybe I don't want to jump questions ahead because, I, but it was. It, I think it was a Metallica lick. I think it was. Yeah. Did I say Unforgiven last time? You might have now. Yeah, now that you say that, that might have you might have said Unforgiven. I think there was a line in there. It was either that or, I mean, I, I learned a lot of riffs first. Uh, and, you know, Pretty Woman, Day Tripper. Uh, yeah. there was, there's this show, Kids in the Hall. I learned the theme of that. And, I, and there was all these little things like that. Where I, and, like, even Wipeout, stuff like that. And I was like, holy shit. I'm, it sounds like what I listened to, you know? Did you learn the Unforgiven? Yeah, I did too. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, it was funny. I was talking to Tosin Abasi. He said one was the first one for him. And the one was the first Metallica song I ever even heard because I didn't, the records didn't just find their way into my hands. So that was the only one they showed on, on MTV late at night. It was like they would show the video from one. That was the first huh. one I ever heard. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of riffs though. You're right. Like Day Tripper, that's a big one. A lot of people have mentioned that because it's a it's a easy enough riff, but then you learn it and it's like, wow, this is really fucking cool. Like the know? reward is is yeah yeah. It's an easy reward because it's not the hardest, 
but the impact is such an iconic sounding thing. Oh, a couple other ones. Bomb Track by Rage Against the Machine. Okay. And Freedom. Those were two big ones for and me. What, I mean, what, what Green Day song? What was the first Green Day song you learned? I think it was One I Come Around. I think that's okay. a common one, you know, but. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Anyone younger than me has been bringing up that I've interviewed brings up Green Day a lot. Not that I didn't like them, but it was, I was already kind of gigging when they came out. Like at 12 and 13, that was that when they sense. came out for me. So I was already way into blues. Like, yeah. All right. I mean, um, I, you know, growing up and it's, and like hearing um, songs like Fuck Off and Die and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, sitting, what is it? Uh, what's the, I don't know. There was a bunch of songs off of Dookie. I can't believe I'm forgetting them. Yeah. But those were just like, look at these guys. They just don't give a shit. They're, and like that year, they played Woodstock 94. I'll never forget. I, re- I remember it. And they were throwing the mud at them, right? They were like, bring it on. And yeah. they had this huge mud fight. And even though that had nothing to do with the music, it had so much to do with the attitude. And yeah. just the energy of it. It was, it was kind of moving in a weird way. I was captivated by it. In my high school band, we had a rock band class. And like I said, I was gigging already. I started kind of gigging right before my freshman year in the summer of eighth, after eighth grade. So then in ninth grade, I was gigging all the time, but also in the school band. And then in 10th grade, I kind of gotten to be, this sounds terrible, but I was like local celebrity. So I was, you know, there'd be stories about me in the paper and on the news and stuff when I'm playing gigs. But I was still playing in the high school band. And so I was the soloist in the band all the time, but that was when, when Dookie hit. And I remember having to play, uh, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that was, I remember having to learn that song. Yeah. Oh yeah. Welcome to paradise. Yeah. Now it's clicking with me. Yeah. There you go. Oh, all right. Number two, what's the first solo that you ever learned note for note? Well, I, I kind of jumped the gun, and I'm, I apologize. Yeah. But I believe it was Unforgiven. That's a good one, man. It's, it's a, a good one. Solo. Yeah. Yeah. It builds. It, it blooms. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? I hadn't listened to the Black Album in 20 years. And Riley, my son, and I, we were taking a, light, a late night ride to get chicken fingers <laughs> damn right you are damn right we were and uh and i said let's listen to metallica and he said okay so i put on the black album and it it definitely holds up i mean there's great songs but some of those solos yeah did not quite as in higher as high regard as i remember them as a kid <laughs> i'll say not that. aging as well yeah not not quite no there's something about hearing it for the first time when it sounds weird to say, but like your brain is still developing and your, especially your ear is still developing and evolving. So yeah. things that sound good from the get go. I felt bad you- though, like analyzing it now as an adult, because it was like, I, I felt myself judging like, Oh, that's an interesting choice you made there. I, yeah. I don't remember that being wrong, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we all do that now. I mean, I listen to, I listen to Beatles songs and moments where I'm just like, Oh yeah, they had no idea what you're supposed to play over that, and they just they, <laughs> they just did it. But that yeah. became the part, and it became right, even though it's exactly. maybe wrong. Exactly. Oh man. All right. 
what's the first thing you play when you pick up a guitar? Do your hands just go somewhere? Well, yeah. I'm I'm in a different well, I'm in open tuning. So okay. if I'm in the open tuning, I guess it would be something like uh, it's really just more of a a chordal thing. If I'm in center tuning, I'll play a G with an add nine, mm. I think, and then I just kind of laugh around for a bit. I don't have like a set. Um, I feel like I remember you always doing like a like the little wing chords or something like that when I you do would that first sometimes. Play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times. Well, it moved from E to G for me, so yeah. A lot of times I'll do those little little wing chords off the G. Um, <laughs> man, it's weird. Why the add nine? Why do all of us fucking turn hit standby on our amp and then just play fucking add nine? It's like, it sounds so good. It does. It just sounds so good. Yeah, it's the candy. It's like putting, uh, it's like putting caramel sauce or chocolate sauce on top of your ice cream. It's like yeah. ice cream's good. Regular major chords, great. Minor yeah. chords, great. You put a nine on it. Oh, you know. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what about if you walk into a music store and you want to try out a guitar? Do you have anything you do that lets you know that this guitar will work? Is it and you might like it? Is there any little things that you do every time you, you try a new guitar? There's no specific things I do. In fact, I'll probably do what I just described. Like I'll play a chordal thing and then play some melodic stuff up and down the neck with some maybe some chord melody stuff. The thing about it, and we talked about this probably last time, and you know this well, you know, just about every guitar I'll pick up off the, off the rack at a, at a store doesn't play the way that I like. And I play really hard. I'm used to just slightly heavier strings, not like you, but just 11s or 12s for standard tuning. So nines or tens kissing the fretboard. I'm like, I'm out. I, I, I can't play this. Like it's very hard to play. It's like Nam, got to bring your own guitar. However, my rule is whatever guitar I'm playing in a store, if I'm playing it after five minutes, then it, that's like the sign for me of like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, I'm seeing the potential in it. I might be leaving with this. But if I put it yeah. down after a minute, put it down after two minutes or seconds, yeah. then don't care. Yeah, it's amazing how it's, it is. It's, it's like that. You either know, oh, I want to keep playing this, or I don't. I don't want to keep playing this. And you just put it back, you know? Yeah. It doesn't connect with you, or it does. And yeah. 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 I do the so stupid well. this. And I, I want to feel the body resonating. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always oh, yeah, checking yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I should be more like that. I, I really am just, I, I take it, play it, and then see if it speaks to me or not. I remember, this never happened otherwise, but I remember when I bought my D28, and it's mm -hmm. a, like a newer one. I've had it for about nine years. HD28V, really nice guitar. At the shop, there was three of them. And I picked up the first one, played my thing, sounded amazing. And then I picked up the second one, played the exact same thing. It was like, oh, my God, this thing's like five times louder than the first one. And then I picked up the third one, and it's almost like there was no sound coming out of it. Mm. So, of course, I picked up the second one. And there wasn't any, like, 
calibrating the guitar or like paying attention to the room. It was just basically which was the loudest, yeah. but having the choice was really, it's something I never get to experience. Yep. And these days I'm much more open. Like I don't have, I, I was telling the guitar breaks guys the other day in my interview, like I, someone was asking about scale length and I like, I kind of don't give a shit if a guitar is inspiring to me and speaking to me, I don't like like a baseball bat neck usually, but every guitar has its own character and its own thing. And I accept it for that. I'm not looking for one guitar to do all the things I'm looking yeah, for. That's, one a, guitar. that's a big point there, I think. And I, I'm not denigrating people who play super strats or Paul Reed Smith's with eight pickup positions and all that stuff. Yep. And it's their working guitar. I get it. I understand the need for it. Just like I understand the need for an Axe FX or a fractal or whatever. And the, I, all great and valid and useful. But yeah, I come from the camp of every guitar has a reason. And I'd rather, if I need to sound like a Les Paul, I'm just going to pick up a fucking Les Paul instead of getting some super strat with a humbucker in the bridge and trying to make it sound that way, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and if you need a telly sound, you're not going to click the coil tap on your, yeah. on your 335, whatever, I don't know. Yeah, I'm very much like, this thing may not do all the other things well, but this one thing it does well, yeah. it fucking slays at it. And that's what I'm looking for. Yep, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. All right, number four. Do you have, I, I added an addendum to this question since the first time I asked it to you back in the rehearsal, but do you have a, like a, a musical narration that happens in your head that just runs through the day? So I told you, I've, I, I hear a shuffle. I mostly hear like a, it's not just a shuffle, but it's a swinging improv. I hear some sort of Charlie Parker-ish improv running through my head. Do you have something like that? Um, yeah. And I think I've said this last time, but it doesn't matter because no one else heard it, but right. I'm, I'm constantly hearing like a four on the floor. That's right. And then, yeah. and then I'm hearing all these like syncopated polyrhythms to it or like just off beats. And, uh, mm, 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 mm. and then there could be melody on top of that. There could just be like a, I don't know. It's always different. Um, it's, it's more rhythm that I'm hearing and it's okay. more stuff. Well, that, that leads me to the addendum to the question then, because I've been paying attention lately to my initial reactions to music and my first thought. So like when I'm in the car and a song comes on I've never heard before and just something random, do I immediately start improvising over this song in my head? Do I immediately start harmonizing the melody that's already there? Do I immediately start just rhythmically breaking things up on top of this groove? I've been trying to pay attention to that and mm. see what I do the most. Do you ever kind of pay attention to that or re realize what you're doing when you hear a song for the first time? I don't think I pay too much attention to it. I find like, I, I feel like I just do the same thing over and over. <laughs> I'll either, I'll either, if I like it, I will I'll listen to it, and then by the second verse or chorus or the second A or B, whatever comes, like I start singing along to it, or I'll I'll always put harmony on it, mm. and then I'll kind of trail off, I'll like maybe like a counter melody, um, but very not so much soloing over it, okay. almost ever, almost ever, it's always more so just what's the, like whatever the song is, or like if I'm listening to like Snarky Puppy or something, yeah. There's like mel the, the melodies are so iconic. The heads are like so. I I I'll be like singing along. I'll either be again like focusing on the rhythms and like playing off of that in my head, or just so tuned into like, okay, this is actually something I do. So like, the melodies, of course, but I will focus in on 
like one specific element. I will like hyperanalyze the bass or I will hy- hyperanalyze just the vocals or just the guitars or just like one of the guitars or just the keys or just like the kick pattern. Mm. Like I'll, I'll stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. I don't yeah, know. I'm a, trying to, it's an interesting yeah. thing to kind of see because it's different for everything that comes on, but it's, it's obviously, it's like an improv. It's totally natural. So like something may come on and if it's whatever, if it's four to the floor, like you were just doing there, I might hear that, that, yeah, some syncopated thing over the top. Or I may start, depending on what the changes are to the song, I may start hearing boom, or, or I may start singing, yeah, a harmony to the lead vocal that's happening or something like that. But it just kind of happens randomly. But I've been trying to kind of just pay attention to it because I'm, man, I'm always trying to strengthen the bond between what I hear and how quickly can it come out somewhere, either sure. here or here or whatever. And it's been interesting. I've been trying to take stock of that every time I listen to something I've never heard before. What's the first thing I, you hear? You know? Yeah. yeah, I feel like if you start paying attention to it, you, it's going to take away your natural <laughs> inclination to it to a degree. Maybe. Maybe. But like but, get it subconscious, but to be aware of the subconsciousness. Well, I know it helped me doing sessions, though, when I keyed into the fact that, hey, the first thing I'm normally hearing when they're even playing the song while I'm still setting up should be the part that I play when I first fire up and it's my turn to play over this tune that they're paying me to do. And I, was, I used to not even realize I already had the part arrive, and I was fucking letting it go before I made a note of it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So yeah. that helped me on sessions, like realizing, hey, what are you hearing right now? Oh, I'm hearing this arpeggio thing. I'm going to do that, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. That's Before you I even remember- sit down and they go, okay, you know, how about we do this or this or that? No, no, no. I've got something already. <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember I was, it was so weird. I was, uh, I had just moved to Cork, Ireland, and it was the, the Cork Jazz Festival. And I, I had already a few gigs which happened because I just like, I met everybody that I needed to beat like on my second day there and I got to play and I met everybody. So I had a few gigs and one of them was with a bunch of friends of mine and I think it was mostly covers, some original songs. And a day before that or so, I just had like a six, eight, like I'd rather go blind in my head. Okay, yeah. And I started just singing a solo to it. I, I, was, I was visualizing like me playing with the slide it's like, bah, bah, like three, three, two, one, two. And sure enough, I get on this gig and they're like, let's do I'd rather go blind. It's like, mm. whoa, weird. And, and sure enough, they're like, go for it. And I just, and I had this idea formulated. Wasn't thinking anything seriously about it. It was just it was playing through my head and it, that doesn't usually happen, but it's, and it wasn't like I was planning my solo. It was basically just how I started the solo was what I was hearing. Yeah. But it was interesting. It was interesting just being like, oh, I've kind of pictured this already. This is like <laughs> visualizing this happening already. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-med- premeditate on your success. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I hate when people say something like that, like before you start a gig or a session. Okay, everybody, let's let's visualize a great success tonight. <laughs> We're gonna kill. Oh, <laughs> oh god! I, I used to play for a guy who was a professional hockey player for a little bit. So his whole his whole thing was very. All right, boys, this is gonna sound very Canadian. Uh, and if you're listening, Chad, hey, how's it going? Miss yeah. you. 
Uh, but he was, he'd be like, all right, boys, let's, uh, <laughs> I don't even remember hockey talk, but pucks on the ice, sticks on the ice today. Let's, uh, uh, like only hard hits and let's get it in the net. Eh? Let's, let's make it a good, you know, like it was all hockey Yeah. in that same kind of, you know, like every band. Yeah. Sometimes. Leave it all on the ice, man. Skate leave, through leave it every all. break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No penalties. Eh? Let's go. Oh man. Oh. Yep. Yeah, we, we've all been like on tour as a side man with those artists where it's like, all right, everybody bring it in before the gig, put the hands in. And it's, yeah, just, yeah. of course, maybe sometimes a prayer, but sometimes it's just a very metaphysical like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I'm always that guy standing there like, <laughs> can we go play the gig now? Not, not to yeah. sound like a douche, but yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. All right. Everyone has different ways of uh, getting ready. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for like, a team huddle, uh, so to speak, to get ready and be in the same place. But yeah. Yep. All right. Number five. When did you start to feel like you found like what you think is kind of your voice on, on the guitar? Um, Cause I think you have one, but was it a conscious decision? Did you notice little things happening where you decided to continue further down that road once they started to happen? Well, I, I like to think of it in two different phases. First, the first one, it started slowly, very, very slowly. Uh, when I was younger and I was telling you, I first heard Stevie and all those guys and I started taking everything I was doing seriously. That was the first step. And then a few years later in my early 20s, I, I found myself playing slide a lot on session, session, uh, sorry, <clears throat> on gigs and recordings and stuff like that. And people were always pretty receptive. They were like, hey, that's, yeah, you played it just like the record there. Uh, why don't, why, you should do that on some other songs too. Okay. Like I wasn't thinking much of it. And then right around that time, I discovered a couple slide players specifically. I was, uh, there's this guy here from Canada, Kevin Bright, who I'm, right. he's like my favorite. And yeah, I knew, I knew of Derek and, you know, Bonnie Raitt, Raikouter. Uh, I was a fan of George Harrison's st- slide playing. There's a bunch of people. But, like, uh, it was this guy specifically that he really pushed me to start playing an open tuning and learning how to do that. And that's where I started taking an open tuned guitar just on any gig I was playing and figuring that out. And more so, uh, yeah, it, it started more so there. And then once within playing in the bros, that band was so much about us playing like ourselves. So we had no choice but to just be ourselves. And I'll never forget, uh, if there was a better, there was never a better story or example. I remember one of the first gigs we did in Nashville, um, playing this one song and uh, it was coming up for a solo from, of mine. And I was looking around and in my head, I was like, well, you know, we're in Nashville. I feel like I should cater to the people listening here and try to try to like maybe chicken pick this a bit more, or, you know, do something that they want to hear. And I tried doing that. And you know what? The reception was still okay. It was fine. But I could feel in the room and it was more so it, I was so self-conscious. I felt like, what the, why did I do that? And in that, in that moment, I realized everyone in that room was, he, was there to hear us play the way we play. Mm-hmm. They didn't come to the show to hear us play like how everyone plays 
in Nashville there. Yep. Um, so that was kind of a moment where I was like, oh, shit, uh, never again. And then I realized, like, you know, it's like you're playing a gig and, you know, if like this is just theoretical, but, like, if you were playing a gig and, uh, you know, let's just say Jimi Hendrix walked in. Yeah. And like, you'd have, a, you'd have a, a piece of you in your head that'd be like, oh, shit, I better bust out all my best Jimmy sounding stuff or else he's not going to think I'm really interesting or good. But the truth is like, he'd want to hear something completely different. He'd want to hear you do your own thing. You know what I mean? And I always say these kind of examples for when people ask about finding your own voice. Uh, sorry, super long answer. Yeah. It was around that time. Early twenties. Yep. Nice. All right. Number six. What do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious if it's the same one you said in our previous rehearsal. That is, that is, I will say that still, but okay. yeah, you know, I will say that, uh, but I'm trying to spin it a bit differently. So it actually, I kind of, I feel like I didn't make it sound like it was an actual weakness. It was just a, like more of a detriment that I do to myself, but I, it results in a weakness. Okay. So yeah, I tend to, I'm not trying to like talk myself up, but I tend to just go for an idea. I tend to go for it. First of all, like I am not a shredder. I can't play fast. Well, I cramp, I'll cramp up. I can't crazy sweep. There's a lot of things like I just can't do. So like those are all weaknesses. Right. And I feel like weaknesses specifically are also stuff that you just haven't spent yeah. all your time focusing on. But I, kind of just go for any idea. I'm not afraid to go for it, even though, even when I don't know how, to, how I'm going to get out of it. And oftentimes I can't help but go for something and it'll result in, in something really sour, wrong note, flub. It just results in bad dexterity and I'm aware of it. And so many times, and I preach to people when I give lessons, I say, just like have restraint just because you can doesn't mean you got to do it. And I catch myself so many times just going for an idea because I just have to follow it. I can't help. <laughs> I just can't stop myself if I'm on to like if I'm on to an idea. And often, often it's great. Often it's uh, not so great. And that results in me just oh, flubbing, oh, missing a note. Oh, sounds like I'm choking something out. So that's, I mean, there's a million weaknesses, but that's the one that comes to mind for sure. Well, I mean, that's interesting because it's, I would never consider it a weakness to keep following kind of what you're hearing, you know what I mean, to its furthest extent. But there is something to be said for, you know, cohesive narration and self-editing as well. You know? yeah. Yeah. I always say it's, it's so much what, you were, what we're playing is not nearly as important as how we're playing it. Sure, 100%. You know, so, I mean, some of my favorite solo I've ever heard are three notes total and mm. just, they're just repeating that it's but it's how it's played uh, but even how it's played sometimes can be it's just like the hardest thing ever like you don't everyone thinks you need the notes you need the theory you need this you need that but really it just yeah. it, it, you need to know how to do it um yeah. where am i going with this i'm not sure i feel like i've driven myself into a ditch here but no oh, no it makes sense yeah. to me you know it makes sense as a weakness to me. I get, I get it. All right. Who's but I, it? But as a weak, sorry, as a weakness though, I think we can get too caught up 
in thinking sometimes. And I, I tend, well, I don't tend to, but I, I can definitely, now that I'm thinking about it, I definitely catch myself. Even though I'm not playing, trying to be like, oh, I'm going to do a Robin thing here. I'm going to, or <laughs> I want to do this thing. I'm, I'm trying, I'm usually like a clean blank canvas in my head. I'm just hearing it and trying to yeah. play it. Um, I definitely sometimes catch myself. Oh, like maybe I'm thinking too hard. You know, I'm, and when you think too hard, I feel like your hands start leading the way more than your head yeah. does or your brain does. So, yeah. Yep, I'm with you on that. I've been noticing lately, I think it's always been the case, but I noticed it now that sometimes I, I don't do a good job of quite breathing as much when playing. And I don't mean taking oh. breaths in my playing. I mean actual physical breathing where I'll take all of a sudden I'll realize I've been holding my breath and also that I'm playing really fucking hard. Like, chill the fuck out, you know? Yeah. I, I realized that about my playing like a, a, about a year or two ago. The breathing thing changed the game. I realized I was sucking the air out of my, out of my body. Yeah. And it, yeah, because of that, it, just like you said, you're going to play so much harder because you're just like holding on for something. You, yeah. Yeah. Taking yeah. breaks and breathing like that. Oh, my God. Yep. It's like yep. having a conversation. Yep. Talking to him, you know? Yeah. What was funny, though, I found I was still like kind of holding my breath even when I was taking breaks in my playing, like I wasn't just noodling the whole time. I was playing the way I wanted, but it was like I was so intense that I had to like, come on, back the fuck off, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I thought one more quick weakness. Uh, I don't know why I'm feeling like I need to say a bunch of weaknesses. I feel like if I'm playing, trying to play like a really fast recurring lick, like a, repeat, uh -huh. a repetitive thing, often uh, my... Like this is like doing it a bunch of times over. Like, and if it's if it's quite fast, I, my hand always cramps up. My really? fretting hand. Yeah. Was well, that just because you don't do it enough? I guess. Maybe. Interesting. Or maybe my hand just doesn't want me to do it. It's like, nope, we ain't doing that. Maybe, maybe. Too cramp. Yeah. All right. What is, or no, who is? a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear. Yes. Um, now I remember the answer last time, so it's quicker for me now, but okay. <laughs> uh, Bill Evans would oh, be a great right. example. Yeah. 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 I remember you said that. Yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, while not shocking because he's brilliant and there's an unbelievable music, I think it's still maybe a surprise to people, you know, as far as your guitar playing goes. So t tell us why. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he has, there, there's such a subdued, subtle, majestic approach to his playing that I'm not saying that I have that, but that's what's drawn me to, for me to really be, just be influenced by that. And his chord melody, his, I mean, he play he's a piano player. Mm -hmm. And there's so many times I, I think I try to play guitar more like a piano than I try to play guitar like a guitar and just his his left hand, his right hand, what he's doing. He's all. It's, I feel like he's just always playing the perfect thing at the perfect time, placing everything just right. I don't yeah, know. There's this this category of like elegant, improvised improvised thing that some people have, where it's just I don't know quite know how you arrive on knowing it's completely fresh and improv, 
but yet it sounds like I already heard this before, this recording. Oh, you know, yeah. but I've never heard it before. And man, that's just something special that people have, you know. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, that that's that's huge for me. Side note, did you hear about Keith Jarrett? I did, yeah. Man. Oh, depressing. Not to bummer this out, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Would you rather have I, I don't remember what you said actually last time. I I think we were together on this, but would you rather have a good guitar and a sh shitty amp or vice versa? The you know, the good amp and the, the bad guitar. Well, we actually we were not not together on this. And I, oh. I regret it. Now I'm thinking about it. I've I, I I had some time to think about it. I specifically said I'd rather have a good guitar because you know, if I'm on stage doing the Ariel Posen, like I need a specific tuning. I need a specific setup, you know, because if I'm going to do the slide. Yeah. But so if I'm just partially, you're dependent on the instrument for certain parts of what you do very much. Yeah. yeah. But then you had these points about, well, you need any guitar is fine. And I've seen you pick up any guitar and it, that was not your thing or not set up the way you like it. <laughs> and it was fine. <laughs> but you know like i yeah i definitely do need an amp with reverb and with some headroom if i'm compressing too fast i start playing like a different person i don't i don't play like myself yep so i yep. thought about that and i don't want to sound like a cop out so i'm going to stick to my answer with the guitar okay. all right but i do i see both sides i mean you're i'm i think you're fucked without either to be honest but yeah for what i do specifically i i do need a guitar that will will work the way that i need it to well dude okay so let's say you're you're on the a flight somewhere right yeah. and you've got whatever your your mule or whatever your main guitar and something happens to the guitar right and you're forced to play just a strat somebody brings you down to the gig and it's not a good one it's like a 1998 american standard you know, with some weird pickups and, and lay sensors maybe and, and not so great. And but you have your two rock and your pedal board. Will that gig go better than you have your mule and your pedal board and you show up and they have a JC one twenty? I don't think so, because first of all, if if I showed up uh as a sideman doing that on any other gig, no problem. In fact, leave the pedals at home and Give me a Strat, a 98 Strat, and even if it's not a two-rock, that'll be fine. But specifically for if it's an Ariel Posen show, I'd be screwed. You know, half my set is in a specific tuning. All those songs, those voicings, the parts are specifically written and played uh, in that tuning. The other half also written in a, is in a, like a baritone tuning. I need that or else I can transpose on the fly. That's no problem. I've, I've done sessions where I had to show up and I just did all these songs that I usually do in open tuning and standard and it was okay, but it's not the same essence. And maybe yeah. I'm the only one that would really notice it, but on a personal level, I wouldn't be, I would be thinking too much, you know, I'm, I'd be singing and trying to remember lyrics, but I'd also be thinking, Oh my God, I'm usually playing in fifth position open tuning. Now I'm just playing in the key of C and standards. Like it would just mess me up. So that would screw me. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, number nine, what keeps you motivated to be better tomorrow than today? Why do you still have the drive to work on new shit and be a better musician 
now? What keeps it going? Um, I think I, I just don't see any other way. I, I had those moments in my life when I was younger, when I thought, you know, maybe I've, I've hit the hump here and I've, I'm just not feeling it. Like I definitely have, I definitely have moments where I get uninspired. We all do, but I keep this continuous mindset where I'm always, it's not even that I want to get better. I do want to get better. I want to evolve always, but I want to stay fresh. I want to stay at that same level. I'm always listening to music. And when I'm not listening to music, I'm hearing music in my head. There's melodies and rhythms going through my head. I'm all, it's, it's, it's what I live and breathe. And it's not even what I do. It's just who I am. And I know I could say the same about you, of course, but it's, I, I don't have an interest of do, in doing something if I'm not going to give it 110% always yeah. and try to, to just to grow. I don't want to stay at the same point. And, it's, and at the same time, I don't want to like always listen back to stuff I've done and be like, Ugh. Yep. That's a big that's, motivator. That's part of it. That's a motivator too. Exactly. Are exactly. you at all motivated by not just growth, but self-preservation? Like of not backsliding, because I were that's something that motivates me as well. Like keeping everything I have, not just also getting better, but I don't ever want to. It's like, man, we all know those guys. I know so many of them. I grew up around who, number one, either they they reached a contentment level and they never grew as a player. That's one side of it. But on the other side, they were maybe the age I am right now when I met them. Then you know, so maybe they were forty then, and now they're sixty. And they can barely play. You know, they're a shell of their former self. So right. I worry about that because they were really great then when they were 40. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, that falls into what I was saying of just staying, staying fresh and always maintaining that, not ever falling under the – like slipping through the cracks and, and letting any – it's not letting weaknesses show, but not getting out of shape. It's, it's, it's like working out and going to the gym and staying yeah. conditioned but always pushing yourself yep. to go further. Yep. And, and we live in a time now where, yeah, there's a lot of great music being put out, but I'm also surrounded by a bunch of fantastic musicians and bands and artists that I admire that I love listening to their music. I love listening to them playing and they it motivate me to want to mm-hmm. put that same kind of drive. So everything under the sun is always keeping the motor running, so to speak, yeah. right. but it has to come within and take away all those, take away everyone else, take away gear take away anything just me and a guitar take away That's gear a... wait what no i'm just yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just, you just lost that, half oh. our fucking audience i'm sorry <laughs> uh, yeah. follow me on youtube if you're leaving but no <laughs> yeah just the guitar is enough to just keep me keep me moving all right number 10 how many flannel shirts oh no um <laughs> this is my only one i wear the same one every time <laughs> all right uh do you have a five-year plan is there some goal that you would like to achieve that is out there and you won't rest until it stops or is it just a lot of micro goals you know do you want to keep on keeping on what what's what's the plan for the next five years yeah I, i'm definitely falling into the micro goal category okay. like we were talking about success Success is your own perception. And to me, success is just being able to keep doing what I'm doing, but I want it to grow. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here thinking 
I want to play the forum in five years or sorry, maybe that's shooting way too high. I don't want to play the, well, maybe not in today's day and age. I mean, you could probably book the forum next year and at the capacities they'll allow a sellout would be about 14 people. You can, then you could say you sold out the forum. That'd be great. So true. I'm going to call my agents and my manager after this and yeah. pitch the idea. Um, no, I don't have, you know, I, so many people I talk to are like, I want to, you know, I want to play the Ryman or I want to play the, this play. I don't really have those. I mean, if that stuff comes eventually, great. But if you're chasing what you're doing for a specific, you know, I want to do what I'm putting all the work that I'm doing so that I can specifically blah, blah, blah one day or do this one day. Then I don't think your head's, first of all, this is just the way I think I, you're, everyone's entitled to their own way of feeling motivated. For me, I just want to stay the course of what I'm doing, get better at it, learn, learn it more, understand what I'm trying to do more, understand the, my audience more, and just cater to that and make a living and put out as much music as I can and as much good music as I can. And I think the hard work will work for itself, mm -hmm. so to speak. So I'm not concerned about what those, those big things could be or not big, medium things or small things could be. But as long as the work and the music and everything is genuine and honest, that's my main focus. And so I just want to stay on that track and, and, and just keep growing with that. That's a, it's a good goal. And it's certainly not too much to ask. I mean, and a good way to look at things, you know, uh, we're all trying to just keep ourselves moving forward while staying happy and keep totally. a roof over our heads. You know? Yeah, and especially at, as in these times, we've yeah. all had to do a, a bit of a pivot. Yeah. Uh, it's all about your perception. It's all about just staying the course and just <laughs> not letting everything else flood your mind and, and let that take over. Yep. Tough, but it's possible. It is possible. All right. Well, that was the, the 10 questions. So members... If you are a member, you'll get the turn to video, which we will do here in a second. If you're not a member, hit join and become a ruler uh, or at least subscribe and support the channel. I appreciate the support. Um, there will be links to all things Ariel Posen in the body of this video. So make sure you buy his albums, buy his True Fire courses. And his, uh, he's got like seven courses, I think, on different companies. And buy his pedals and everything you can support a real artist who's doing something and needs your support. And dude, thank you for doing this. It's uh, and thank you for doing it twice. It's been hey, a man. pleasure. Any, any excuse to hang out with you, man. It's, I mean, I'll do a third one. We can consider this the dress rehearsal. If the first one was the, uh, the, the, like the, uh, the read through, but oh, no, it's my, pleasure, man. I, 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 <laughs> Well, I made the flannel joke. I, the joke was supposed to be, well, at least you got the memo to wear the same clothes so I can cut together, you know, but whatever. <laughs> Did I wear the same thing last time? I don't fucking know. I just assume you wear that shirt every day. I don't know. <laughs> fair assumption. That's fair. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Rulers, we'll be right back. <laughs>